In this episode of the Deming Institute podcast, doctorate statistician Mike Twighty is our guest. Mike shares the difference between analytic and enumerative studies using a simple analogy. Mike will also share important learnings from his time with Dr. Deming. Hi, I'm Trip Babbitt with the Deming Institute podcast. Our guest today is Mike Twighty. Welcome, Mike. Thanks. Glad to have this conversation with you. Very good. So, Mike, let's just start out. Tell, tell us a little bit about you, where, where you live, what you are, are doing now, what you, maybe even you've done in the past. Um, I live in Minneapolis. I am currently retired. I'm finding ways to make myself useful, so I don't really like that <laughs> R word so much. But I'm actually not, I'm not working for income, let's put it that way. I started my career as a college professor, teaching in a mathematics department in a small liberal arts college in Minnesota. I'm, I have graduate degrees in statistics, and when I left teaching, I joined a firm that did consulting on Dr. Deming's philosophy. And when I, so when I joined this firm, I didn't really know anything about Dr. Deming. They hired <laughs> me as a statistician. Okay. And uh, so I... I actually met Deming and sort of had my, uh, as probably many people would describe it, I had my sort of world shake um, <laughs> sort of at a four-day seminar. The first four-day seminar I went to, it was, uh, it uh, gave me a new view of the world, sort of uh, uh, a, a way for my, my values and my education and training to sort of come together and provide a way that I could help people. Okay. And, and so what time frame were we talking when you first met Dr. Deming and then maybe elaborate a little bit more on your, I've heard statisticians say this before I met Deming and then I really learned statistics or, you know, the people that, that, that obviously have worked with him. So give, give us a little background on that. Sure. I uh, met Dr. Deming in 1986 at a four day seminar in at uh, the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. And I had joined this consulting firm about three months before and had had gone to a couple a couple of the firm's clients along with somebody else and I'd been doing a lot of reading and work in the background um, and had had sort of limited exposure to Dr. Deming at all before that. Um, and some of my first exposure to Dr. Deming before I met him was through the, there's an, there was an old MIT video series where they actually filmed Dr. Deming in an empty classroom, uh, making notes on chalkboards and such. And if anybody who's ever met Dr. Deming would realize that that probably wasn't a good forum for him because he really um, would come to life in front of an audience. Now, there are some people who would say that he wasn't the most lively person, lecturer anyway, but he would really feed off the energy from, a, from an audience. And so this was really a very um, dry <laughs> set of videos uh, where he's trying to expound his ideas without any interaction at all. And, and so I didn't expect very much from the four-day seminar, but he really, just from the very beginning, I got captivated 
by what he had to say and and the messages that he was that that he was putting forth. As far as the statistics, you made a comment about um, statisticians say they didn't learn how to do statistics until they met Dr. Deming, and this is this could well be a shortcoming of mine. But when I completed my PhD in statistics, um, I I knew all the math and I could I I knew the world that the sort of statistics world I think um, but I hadn't thought about the the disconnect between sort of the world that statistics much of statistics is designed for and the world that we live in Dr. Deming mm-hmm. would say every theorem is true it's just a matter of whether the there's a connection between the world in which the theory is true and the world in which we live. Yeah. Well um, said. With respect, with, re, with respect to statistics, I think that that's often characterized. Um, I don't know who who I heard this from origi- initially, but they talk about the difference between um, what are they characterize as pond statistics and stream statistics. Hmm. Um, and and so in and I in. I've heard a number of people talk about it, so I, I probably sh- I should have the right citation, but I but I don't know who to originally credit with this. But but it's a really nice analogy in pond statistics. If you if you're asking people to characterize a pond, um, the statistician reigns supreme in that in that situation. They can tell you the sampling plan and they can tell you the decision rules you'd make because they would tell you how to sample from the pond and characterize what's in the pond. Um, and so that's, that's where all like the, the usual statistical measures of uncertainty all come in. Um, in stream statistics, you want to sample from the stream. Um, but any predictions you're making or judgments you're making will be about, the water that's coming down the stream, not the water that was there when you sampled. Hmm. So you learn things from the data you gather, but you also have to know a lot about the subject matter, about where the water's coming from, and is, is the water that's going to be coming to you at whatever time your prediction's about, is it going to be comparable to what you sampled from? And if not, how might it not be? And so there's a lot of non-statistical information that's involved in that. Okay, and, and so now we're we've kind of, uh, and I like the uh, analogy much better of pond and stream. That that certainly makes sense. Uh, but now we've we've entered the realm of enumerative versus analytical at this point. The, well, that is true. That's <laughs> I first heard Dr. Deming's distinction between analytic and enumerative studies at a Deming seminar for statisticians that was held at NYU's business school in Manhattan. Um, and Dr. Demings, in it's hard to summarize it really quickly, but it is kind of the pond versus stream statistics. Dr. Deming would say that any statistical study should have as its purpose to provide a rational basis for taking action. And he would say the distinction between analytic and enumerative studies is on what are you going to take action. So in an enumerative study, it's uh, where you're going to take action on the the frame or the pond, or, right? Or, 
Yeah. <laughs> the, the, you're taking action on what you're taking the data from. And the aim there is to make a judgment about what's there and maybe take appropriate action. And in, a, in a new, an analytic study, the aim is to take action on the, on the process or cause system which created what you have now. And who knows exactly what it'll create in the future, but you want to take action to improve it for the future, which is, you know, process improvement. And so when you think about processes, there's, those really are in the realm of, of analytic studies. Now there's statistical tools that really help you a lot in, in working on analytic studies and analytic problems, but statistics by itself, isn't a discipline that can give you all the answers. You need to have subject matter knowledge as well as statistics okay. in analytic problems. Okay, and so that that is kind of the where did the data come from? A, a lot about you know, you've, like you said, the subject matter expert. You can know the theory associated with the statistics, but you've got to understand more about the data itself. Right. Yeah. So if we go if we go back to the Back to the pond versus stream, you know what's upstream? What's gonna what's gonna be coming down next? Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it spring and is it a is it a, um, a stream that comes out of the mountains and is there snow melt that's going to be coming down and is that going to be different than what we've been seeing or or do we expect that that what's happened what we see in our stream tomorrow and the next day and next week is going to be like what we're seeing right now? And that, again, that that takes knowledge of the cost system. Okay. And, and I wound up listening to your 2012 video, so that's kind of an advertisement for that for people that want to uh, listen to you a little bit more uh, you know, on these subjects. But I, I saw where you took the 14 points and you kind of broke out, uh, and the seven deadly diseases for that matter. Uh, and kind of said, okay, these things are enumerative and these things are analytical. And these enumerative things are kind of the things Dr. Deming talked about that wanted to stop. And these analytical things are kind of the, the future, the more forward-looking types of, uh, of activities. Was that, would that be a good way to describe it? How, how might you describe that? Well, I think, I think that's, well, so the, background for that is when I first met Dr. Deming, he was teaching based on the 14 points and seven deadly diseases. Well, actually, when I first met him, there were, there were five, but, but there were seven within a couple months afterwards. Um, and he, and I heard people say the 14 points are Dr. Deming's management philosophy. And I looked at him and I, and I saw them as, as saying, do this, don't do that. This is a bad thing. So I didn't see that as a, a, as a philosophy, but rather what to do. It was sort of manifestations of a philosophy, as it were. You know, so if you look at an organization, if he looked at an organization, he said, these are things I see that I think are, are destructive, or these are things that I see that we should be doing differently. Um, and so I was asking myself, where is this coming from? I mean, why is his sort of worldview different? How is his worldview different than other people? Because some of the stuff he said didn't at that time make any sense to some people. They just said, you know, what's this guy smoking? <laughs> um, 
And, you know, because it seems so counterculture to what a lot of people had always accepted as wisdom. So I, I started asking myself, where did this come from? And when I got exposed to the idea of analytic versus enumerative, and again, you know, I have some some really good statistician friends who would say that that the distinction is in statistics. It just wasn't very specifically articulated in ways that I could understand it. Mm. Um, mm. But but as I became aware of that, I started saying, wait, you know, he's really saying the same kind of thing to managers that he was saying to statisticians. That we learned stuff. But what we learned was about managing the pond. And we don't live in ponds. We live in streams. And so what we have to do is manage the stream. We have to say, okay, what do we have to do to try to improve what's going to come? Instead of, instead of I think the way I would characterize it is that the sort of enumerative management practices were focused on judging what we have now and presuming that predictions based on those judgments are automatically going to be true. Okay. Um, and so, for example, when he talks about about the way we do performance appraisals, um, he I think he would have said that there were other problems with that as well. But but it's in a re- he talks about not managing by looking in the rearview mirror, and I think that's where he's saying this is effectively this is the enumerative management. We're judging what we've got, presuming that what we've got is going to pers- um, persist into the future. So. Um, when he talks about performance appraisals, one of his concerns about performance appraisals is to what extent is a current, even if you could measure accurately current performance, if we use that to promote somebody to a new job, is, is that necessarily a good prediction? Because the requirements for a new job might be fundamentally different than the requirements for the job that the person excelled in. Hmm. Okay. So hence, you know, I, I, so I, to some extent, I think that's sort of what lies behind the Peter principle when they say people are promoted to their level of incompetence. Ah. <laughs> so you get, you, you, maybe you get promoted as, as you excel and then you get pushed into a position where you suddenly, it requires different skills and capabilities and they may not be ones you have that are really good. In my personal life, um, I went to work, I did, I did quality management consulting for a number of years. And then I went inside a company and um, started getting management responsibility. I had uh, sort of some quality management. I had um, um, product assurance people reporting to me. And I determined that I didn't really like managing very well. Um, I liked help working with the people and helping them develop, but I didn't like all the rigmarole involved in management. And I really wasn't, it's not what I do the best. So I actually had the um, sanity to sort of say, this isn't what I want to do. So I kind of backed out of that and went back to a role where I just helped people solve problems and I helped teach people and help them learn and grow um, without sort of some of the management responsibilities. Okay. So, so that could be my Peter Principle moment where I, you know, got, where I accept, where everybody said, this is going to be a great job for you. It's more responsibility. And, and, and it was, it was just stuff I didn't really like and I didn't excel at. So, okay. I had the sense to go back to something I did well. You, uh, 
earlier you, you had begun a, a pretty good segue actually to my next question, which was uh, in this 2012 presentation, you know, you're talking about enumerative versus analytical or the pond versus the stream, but you were talking also about kind of the lens, the Deming lens in which you, you're, you're seeing the world and you kind of took the system of profound knowledge and you, you know, overlaid and actually just to plug the other uh, show that I'm involved with, which is the Deming lens is actually what we're trying to do is look at the world kind of through that Deming lens. And, and the thing I'm curious about is in that talk, you talked about actually looking through that lens. But but the thing I want to ask you about is what lens are the other people looking through? How how would you assess that? That well, that, that have not been that, exposed to Deming, right? Right. Uh, well, and so just to back up a little bit, I, you know, with the whole management as analytic study mm-hmm. that I did, I, I was trying to articulate that before Dr. Deming had started talking talking about a system of profound knowledge. And so when he began talking about a system of profound knowledge, I said, okay, that's it. That, excuse me, that's from Dr. Deming's, from Dr. Deming's, in Dr. Deming's voice, in his words. What he's saying really are the theoretical foundations behind what he has to say in terms of the 14 points and things. So um, my analytic and enumerative management stuff was maybe a excuse me my my enumerative and analytic stuff was maybe a move in in the direction that that Dr. Deming went with a system of profound knowledge so i wouldn't I wouldn't presume that 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 um, idea of mine sort of takes precedence over dr Deming's it was sort of it actually did proceed when he articulated a system of profound knowledge but okay. Uh, you know, it's interesting you ask about the the lenses that people look through because, um, well, and I think the the metaphor of a lens, as far as I'm aware, was first coined by Nidabakaitis with respect to Dr. Deming's system of profound knowledge. Okay, um, and I think in in the New Economics, Dr. Deming gives her credit for for that term. But yeah, I think there are several questions. What you know, one of them is he's looking at the world through a different lens. So we should ask how are our lenses different to your point? How does the lens of somebody who's just, you know, studied business in uh, traditional ways different than Dr. Deming's. And I am hesitant to try to make authoritative statements about that, but, but, but you have a perspective. Might, <clears throat> yeah. And I think we might be able to get there to some extent by looking at contrast. Okay. So when we think about a system of profound knowledge, he would say, you know, that we should be viewing our organization as a system. And um, in the beginning of kind of all of his books, he has this picture of production viewed as a system, which is basically a flow diagram. And on the left, it has suppliers of materials and equipment coming in, and it's got production, assembly, and inspection. And on the on the right side, it has uh, distribution and consumer res- consumers and consumer research and so it's a it's basically a flow chart of an organization and he proposes that that should be an organization chart or, or a, a way to think about your organization instead of just thinking about it as a hierarchical organization chart 
And I think part of his contention is that if you think about your organization as a hierarchy and you ask people someplace in the hierarchy, well, who are your customers? They'll probably, I mean, they might not, I don't know, they might act as though the people above them are their customers. And I think that's a really common thing. I mean, if you have to please somebody, you want to probably please the person that you report to that holds power over you. And he would say that if you think about the organization as a system, you're, it's maybe a more natural thing to say, well, how do we, you know, who do, who takes our products and services inside our company as well as outside? And how do we serve those people better? And how do we, you know, work to improve the whole, the whole process of our organization. So I think that's one of the ways that, that a system of profound knowledge lens is different than maybe a traditional organizational lens. So, so are you, uh, are we getting into view of the separate departments versus, and one of the things I've discovered in consulting with service industry is nobody is a better systems thinker than a customer. Because when I call up and I have a problem with my cable or my internet or something like that, uh, I don't care about the department that you're sending me to that I have to you know, get to the contact center and then I got to get to a technical person. Then I got to get to a technician to come out and uh, take a look at my home. They are the ultimate systems thinkers, I think, in terms of customers. Um. Yeah, I don't know that they, at some level, that's certainly true. I mean, they just want a solution, and they don't really care where it comes from. Um, that's, yeah, that's certainly true. And then you um, see, and then, then you run into the departments that you have, which is the way organizations think versus the whole system. They think in terms of, I've got my sales department, and I've got my operational department, and I've got my finance department, you know, the, those separations. Right. Um, yeah. And a big part of what Dr. Deming talked about was trying to say, how do we think about our organization as a system? You know, how do we view it? Well, his definition from the new economics is he said, a system's a network of interdependent components that work together to try to accomplish a common aim of the whole system. And I think a lot of times we lose, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the overall aim of the system somehow. You know, we, um, we find ways, well, we don't even focus on, on a single aim for the whole system. We, each department is given their own aims or their own goals. Um, and we're asked, well, I mean, this gets into the, the other stuff we, talked about trying to talk about you know dr deming says the system needs to have an aim and his recommended aim for he he says the aim proposed here for any organization is for everybody to gain stockholders employer employees suppliers customers community and the environment over the long term which i think is also something that is rare in organizations today and it gets undermined lots of ways 
and and why does that happen what what do you, what have you seen as you've worked in with uh you know your consulting and your uh you know working with with you know a company what are the forces at work maybe would be a better question well i don't have again i i won't pretend to have all the answers but if you listen just to the, what his recommended aim is again and think about what undermines that in the environment we live in. So he says the aim proposed here for any organization is for everybody to gain, stockholders, employees, suppliers, customers, community, the environment, over the long term. I think that um, you can you can think about what struck you in that, but when I hear that, I believe in the world that we live in today at least, you know, here in the United States and who knows about other places, but it feels to me like there's um, not necessarily a balanced perspective of everybody gaining. It seems to me that there's so much that's done focused on the owners, maximizing shareholder value these days, um, often at the expense of employees and suppliers and customers and community and the environment. I mean, I'm not sure that we do a good job of balancing all those different stakeholders here Hmm. today. And then the end of the statement says over the long term. And I think that there's become such an emphasis on short-term results on, you know, quarterly dividend, you know, what are we doing in terms of quarterly dividend and quarterly reporting and, and how are we, how does the company look on a quarter by quarter basis? And we see the, see the stock fluctuations. They're reported to us ad nauseum, right? Every day there's a, there's, <laughs> they have full, are, whole financial channels <laughs> reporting every second. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. My wife, my wife said to me a, a couple weeks ago, we were driving in a car and, and sort of the, one of the economic reports came on and she said, you know, I would really love it if there were daily reports about the, about the number of people who were homeless or who, you know, what's happening to the number of homeless people day by day, or what's happening to the number of people who are hungry in our country day by day. Now that, you know, that it's just a matter of emphasis. Mm. And that was her point. I'm not sure that that would be useful either because day by day, if that gets the other part of it, you know, we, if we focus on all these short-term results, we often will do things in the short term that will undermine our ability to sort of optimize our systems for the long term. Okay. All right. So there's a, a question I had. I read uh, Rob Roden's book, um, uh, Probably, boy, it's probably been two or three years ago now. But he mentions in the book uh, that that you are the one who told him this this quote. And I just want to I, I I don't remember the context of it. I just have it written like in my notes. But that data is like garbage. What did you mean by that? Well, it's actually it's uh, part of a, a phrase coined, I believe, by Mark Twain. He said, "Data are like garbage." Um, you better know what you're going to do with them before you collect them. So the first part is by itself is, is not very useful without the second part. Okay. Um, if we're going to, so data come at you and 
before you react to those data, there are lots of really, there are really some important questions to ask. It's like, why were these data collected in the first place? Um, back in the day, you know, I, a long time ago, I, I did, um, I worked in, in manufacturing plants and I was trying to teach people, people about statistical process control and people would bring me data. They would bring me control, statistical control charts and they would ask me what the patterns meant. And you can get pretty good at trying to say, oh, well, this kind of pattern will often arise from this kind of scenario. And I won't go into any specific scenarios, but you could, you could sort of be give them some insights and they say, oh my gosh, that's just the way our process works. And and you feel you feel a little rush when you when you give people advice like that, and it's sort of like you're sitting there with a uh, you know a hat with moons and stars on it. You're sort of like Merlin, and you can tell people things. But then at some point, I started I started saying, well, there's another question I need to ask first, and I would say, why are you collecting these data? What action do you intend to take based on the data you're collecting? I mean, it goes back to Dr. Deming saying every statistical study should have as a basis to provide a rational, should have as a purpose to provide a rational basis for taking action. And so I wanted to know the why, you know, what action do you think these data are going to guide you to take before we start interpreting the data themselves? Um, be because there's without that theory, without the understanding of where we want to, how we want to use the data, um, who knows what you can learn from it? Maybe something, but it should start with the purpose, just like lots of stuff. Okay, very good. Um, so my last question, uh, Mike, is my typical one I ask in interviews. I was actually being made fun of at the uh, Deming Conference for this. But uh, is there anything that you'd like to clarify from any of your responses before? Is there any question I didn't ask that you wish I would have? You know, I think that we've been able to talk about most of the things that were sort of in my agenda. So, I, yeah, I think at this point, uh, maybe the questions will come up out of this conversation. But I think that... That's probably enough for today. All right. Very good. Well, Mike Twighty, we enjoyed having you on the Deming Institute podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Deming Institute podcast. You can help increase our reach by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or go to our website, podcast.deming.org, to subscribe. Also rating us on iTunes helps rank us so others can find our podcast.